Welcome to the shit show. Hello, my squirrel friends. So Kate and I are back. Say hi, Kate. Hello. Um, and we are doing a case that is bananas. Uh, right now it's looking like it's going to be three parts. <laughs> um, I don't know if it'll be more than that or not. We will see. I have just, when I... In, in previous cases, when I say that I am going down the rabbit hole, like, those don't even compare to this game. <laughs> uh, I got a couple requests for it, and honestly, I'm not going to lie to y'all, I thought about not doing it. Because it's gonna, I knew it was going to be so extensive, and there have been times during research that I'm like, nah, fuck this. I want to just wash my hands of it and be done. But then I was like, no, I really actually want to do this. I just need to put the work in. So before I tell you who the case is about, I wanted to bring up this true crime case I saw on Facebook. And the only reason why I want to bring it up is because it kind of relates to the case that we're going to talk about. Um, so you I know, saw just this- kinda. Huh? Just kind of. Well, it, just wait. So John Eisenman lost his daughter to sexual trafficking at 19 years old. Okay, so he did what any father should do and rescued, searched for her and rescued her himself. Right. True that reminds me of a Law and taken. Order case. <laughs> Makes me think of Taken. That too. <laughs> um, so when he found out that the person who sold her into the sex trafficking was her 19 year old boyfriend... He met up with him and bludgeoned him and stabbed him to death in November 2020. I mean, fair. Facts. Uh, They found him. Huh? I would do it. I would do it, and I I already know my husband said he would do it. Um, So they found the boyfriend dead in October 2021 in the car he abandoned. And he um, is now waiting to be sentenced. Personally, I think he did the community a service. <laughs> right. Like, so um, he shouldn't I be. See no- <laughs> I see no problem. I know. Fuck around and find out if you did something shady like that to my kids. I would right. bury you. Same. Like, no ands, ifs, or buts about it. You'd be dead. And I'm sorry. What fucking good parent wouldn't? Facts. So, I bring like, that up you because sell, I, you I read it and I was like, oh my god. god. Yeah, no. I'm sorry, motherfucker. You're yeah, many yeah, yeah. that. Yep. So, having probably a three or four part series on the Green River Killer. (laughs) Um, So, before I even start going into the case, a lot of my information came from the book Green River Running Red, the real story of the Green River Killer, America's Deadliest Serial Killer by Anne Rule. I read it on Scribd. No, I'm not sponsored by them yet, but I fucking should be. You should be. (laughs) 
you should definitely go check the book out though because like it's 600 and some odd pages like she is so detailed and i'm not even gonna get close to that otherwise we'll be sitting here for like a year um now gary leon ridgeway is famous for admitting to the most serial killings he is linked to the deaths of 49 women but has confessed to 71 and police think he may be linked up to 90. Most were strangled to death around Seattle and Tacoma, Washington. Ridgway stated during his confession, I killed so many women, I have a hard time keeping them straight. So, trigger warning to the max, this has m rape, murder, necrophilia. The whole thing. Like, he is just... Holy shit. Um, so his... M.O. was he would target teenage female sex workers and runaways, and then he would rape them and strangle them to death. He would then dump their bodies in the nearby woods and rivers, most notably the Green River, which is where he got his name. And he would often return to, quote, admire his work. Um, and he is best known for raping his victims and engaging in necrophilia as well as being the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history. Um, during his interview when he was arrested, and the, the, I'm, I'm, this is like a ugh, garbage. He said, here I am, Gary Ridgway, the guy who everybody thought was slow since elementary school, somebody who couldn't hold a candle to Ted Bundy, but here I am, and I'm best at something. What oh, the girl. fuck? Yeah. Like, oh, sure. No, this is not something to be proud of. This is not like, like this is not a trophy. Your dick back into back between your legs and go fuck yourself in the ass. How about that? Like the fact that he thought that this was like a brag just irritates me. So much. <laughs> um, so it took nearly three years to catch him. Um, and that is crazy to me when you think about it. Like, um, it's hard to believe that he got away with it for so long, in my opinion. Um, now, one of the things that gets me about him was that he would act like so surprised that it happened, right? Which <sighs> nothing grosses me out more than like disingenuine, like fucking. Like, how do you not know it's going to happen? <laughs> Just ugh. Also, my daughter loves when you go. Bleh. She laughs every time. <laughs> um. Now, Ridgeway was born on February eighteenth, nineteen forty-nine, in Salt Lake City, Utah, and he was the second of three boys. Uh, his father, Thomas Newton Ridgeway, was a bus driver, and his mother, Mary Rita Ridgeway, was a sales clerk at J.C. Penney. Um. 
Mary would tell Ridgway stories about her time working in the suit section at JCPenney and how men would become aroused when she measured the inseams of men's suits while she would take a whiff of their genitals. <laughs> I would never tell my kids that. Okay, look. Look. I, I'll be transparent. I have two children. I have an OnlyFans. I don't care. But a whiff of their genitals? I enjoy my partner. But I don't even want to smell sweaty ball sack, okay? Like, That's my whole thing. Is I'm like, I love my husband. I have been with him for a long time. But you are not going to catch me sniffing his genitals ever. Be like, mm, and then telling my kids about it. Like, no, no, no. Now, now here's what gets me. Okay, this this really will make you like gag, right? So, in addition to his mom talking about whiffing <laughs> male genitals, his father habitually told Gary many stories about how his coworker would initiate a necrophilia, which is sexual intercourse with a corpse. At their place of work, which was the mortuary. So it got planted in his head very early. Um, now, the family moved to SeaTac, Washington in 1960, where Ridgway attended Chinook, I think that's how you say it, Junior High School, and Tai E High School. And Ridgeway was like the redheaded stepchild. Like they did not like him. Um, the redheaded stepchild. <laughs> his brother Gregory was like the one they held on a pedestal. He was regarded as like the most accomplished sibling. He ran for student office and later majored in physics at a nearby college. Meanwhile, Gary had like a low IQ that was they said was in the 80s at this time. Um. Now, however Ridgeway may have felt about his siblings, the focus of a lot of his familial angst was against... You want to take a guess? Mom. His mother! Because nope, <laughs> everybody's so. got fucking Don't mommy with issues. With mommy issues. We literally just talked about this in the last episode. What is with men and mommy issues? Well, no, it wasn't the last episode. It was the one before that. It was when we did... It wasn't Tyler. It was when we did uh, BTK. Fucking mommy issues. Um, now, Ridgeway told prosecutors he was sexually attracted to his mother. <laughs> and that his arousal also Calm triggered... Calm down, Norman Bates. <laughs> and that his arousal also triggered his hate for her. Okay. Okay, there's hate fucking, which can be fun, but no. Not your mama. Now, no. police suspected that Ridgway was sexually molested by Mary Rita, his mom, noting that Gary admitted a memory of his mother washing his genitals after one bedwetting incident in his early teens, which is incredibly inappropriate for his age. Um, ew. Um... Now, classmates recalled that Ridgway would face corporeal punishment with, like, a belt or a stick from both parents for, like, minor offenses. 
Uh, Marsha Winslow, who was actually married to Ridgway from 90, 1973 to 1980, recalled Mary Reader yelling at Gary's father, Thomas Newton, constantly. Um, although Ridgway admitted that he fantasized about killing his mother, he never thought she sexually molested him or saw a connection between that fantasy of wanting to have sex with his mom yeah. and his later behavior. <laughs> Um, now Ridgway was dyslexic and was actually held back a year in high school. Um, now here's what I don't understand. Okay. I looked and looked and looked. There was never anything done about what I'm about to tell you, which pisses me off. So when he was 16, he stabbed a six year old boy and the boy survived. Ridgway stated he led the boy. Never charged for this. Thank you very much. Ridgway stated he had led the boy into the woods and then stabbed him through the ribs into his liver. But nothing happened. Fucking hate police. <laughs> what? All right. Um, so he's, he was also cruel to animals. And this part really upsets me. Obvious reasons. He reported once that he locked a cat in the refrigerator until it died. Again with people in, in refrigerators, man. We talked about the, the babysitter that put kids in the fridge. Yep. What? Hell, they even, like, if you guys read the original It books, I don't know if anybody has read those, but... Me, even though I'm terrified of clowns. Books, um, you know... They had the secret fridge where he would hide his animals because he was a little fucking psychopath. Yep. Um, blah, 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 blah. There was also another incident with a child that he said he killed while they were at the local pool. Of course, they ruled this one an accident. But Ridgway claims that he wrapped his legs around the boy's neck and held him underwater until he died. So we are dealing with such an awesome person, guys. <laughs> He's so great. Like, I don't know how anybody could think that he did anything bad. <laughs> now, Ridgway graduated from Taiyi High School in 1969 and married his 19-year-old high school girlfriend, Claudia Craig. He actually joined the United States Navy and was sent to Vietnam, where he served on, a, on board a supply ship and saw combat. Um, now, during his time in the military, Ridgway had frequent sexual intercourse with sex workers and actually contracted gonorrhea. So his marriage to Claudia ended within a year. <laughs> At least it was treatable? Uh, question mark. <laughs> I mean, I get why she left him. I mean, fuck you, dude. I mean, totally. But, like, I mean, at least it was treatable so she wasn't, like completely screwed if she got it from him that's true so so good Rid job bro you got <laughs> the best of the stds i guess now ridgeway's first two marriages resulted in divorce because of infid infidelity by both partners um according to him but um, but his second wife Marsha Winslow claimed that the reason why it ended was because he put her in a chokehold. 
the kinky side of me is like, oh, yes, daddy. But like knowing that it was probably non-consensual goes, nah. Mm. Right. Yeah. Like, bleh. so he actually found Jesus during his second marriage. And would go door to door reading the Bible out loud. He'd also do it at home, insisting that his wife follow the strict teachings of their pastor. Ridgway would also frequently cry after sermons or reading the Bible. <laughs> okay. Now, despite I his wanted to make a Christian guilt joke, but like, I don't know if it's actually appropriate this time. Like, I feel a little bad about it. Right? Because get this, even though he was finding Jesus, he continued to solicit sex workers and wanted his wife to participate in sex in public and in inappropriate places, sometimes even in areas where his victims' bodies were later discovered. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Now, according to his ex-wives and girlfriends, Ridgway had a very insatiable sexual appetite. His first three ex-wives and several ex-girlfriends reported that he demanded sex from them several times a day. Now listen, we got shit to do, okay? <laughs> like, you've got a hand, you'll be okay. Um, often he would want to have sex in public areas or in the woods. Which, if you've ever had sex in the woods, it is not pleasant. Um... Ridgway himself admitted to having a fixation with sex workers. Duh. Uh, Don't say. <laughs> with whom he said he had a love-hate relationship with. He frequently complained about their presence in his neighborhood, but then he would take advantage of their services, like, regularly. Some have speculated that Ridgway was actually torn between, like, his lust for sex workers and his religious beliefs, which is why they think that he, like, started killing them. Um, Bro, that's a you problem. Don't make it a them problem. Facts. Um, now, in 1973, he married Marsha Lorraine Brown, and she gave birth to his son in 1975. Ladies, it's not... <sighs> Attractive to marry serial killers okay they're not mm. worth it they're not they just aren't stop it and she even claimed that he tried to use religion to cope with his sexual desires now his second marriage ended in 1981 <clears throat> which is just before the killing start he married the third for the third time in 1988 to Ju Judith Lorraine Lynch. And what I'm about to say is going to shock all y'all, right? So this is 1988. <clears throat> she stays married to him until 2002. So she is married to him throughout the whole murder spree. Which is... Bananas. Most of the killing spree, I should say. Not all of it, because the killings start earlier than 88, but still. Uh, anyway, so in 1980, Ridgway was actually arrested for allegedly choking a prostitute, but no files were fi no charges were filed. <laughs> Words are hard. 
Uh, after I'm sorry, he, I wanted to now be files were charged because <laughs> so fucking great. Like, I'm sorry, this file cabinet cannot be charged because it did not know the contents that it was holding. It was merely right. there by chance. So no charges were filed after he claimed that the woman had bit him. So he said that she bit him and that's why he choked her. Um, and, you know, because at this time, sex workers had so much, you know, fucking backup with the police. Um, that really hasn't changed, let's be honest. No, it hasn't. So two years after this charge, he was arrested for solicitation. And it is widely believed that shortly after this is when Ridgway started his killing spree. All because he got caught with a prostitute. Bro, keep your dick in your wife. How about that? Right. So, I will try... I'm going to start talking about the murders. I'm not going to talk about exactly how they died. <clears throat> because I was looking over it and, like, I don't want to keep repeating myself. And plus, I want to spend more time talking about the, the women and who they were. Um... Just because I feel like in all of the articles that I read, there was not a whole lot of information on the victims. And I think largely it is because there are so many. Um, so I'm going to try and talk about them in the order of disappearance rather than when they were found. It was just like easier for me to keep track that way. Makes sense. <clears throat> because... Some of these girls weren't found until like a decade after they disappeared, which is crazy banana to me. That is. Um, so now it is widely believed his killing spree started in July of 1982, starting with a 16-year-old girl who had run away from her foster home. Um, on July 15th, some children who were riding their bikes found the strangled body of Wendy Caulfield. Her body was found in the Green River under the Peck Bridge a week after she was reported missing. So she was one of the few that, like, she was found pretty close to when she disappeared. Um, now, the Peck Bridge is located, and this means absolutely nothing to me, <laughs> where the Frager Road and Kent Des Moines Road intersect in Kent, Washington. Um, Wendy Lee Caulfield was born on April 17th, 1966. July 8th, 1982 was the last time anyone who knew her saw her alive. Jenny, Wendy's mom, filed a missing persons report with the Tacoma police the day she disappeared. Wendy was found with her green and white blouse... <clears throat> and blue jeans tied tightly around her neck. She was still wearing her socks and shoes, but she was completely naked. The King County Medical Examiner circled pictures of her tattoos and hoped of, uh, you know, using them as a positive identification. A Mr. Joseph Yates, a tattooer, called the Kent Police Department confirming that her tattoos were his work and that her name was Wendy, letting, her, letting them know that her mother lived in Pully up? Polly up? I don't fucking know. Wendy had a dark bruise on her left arm, two broken bones higher up in her arm with lots of bleeding around the fracture, fracture, 
indicating that she and her killer had been in a really like violent struggle. Um, Wendy's cause of death was asphyxiation due to ligature strangulation, which is super sad because she was fucking 16. She was a baby. Um, Deborah Lynn Bonner, who was born on October 23rd, 1958, was known to be the Green River Killer's second victim. She was only 23 years of age. Deborah was the youngest born to Shirley and Walter Bonner, sorry, and had two older brothers, Walter Jr. and Raymond. Did you almost say Dahmer? Huh? Did you almost say Dahmer? I did. (laughs) I love it. Listen, I have been up since 6 a.m. Leave me alone. (laughs) I feel like that was really funny. We're like sitting here talking about serial killers, and you're like, no. No, No. wrong one. Now, Deborah typically went by the name Dub. Dub was known as an attractive, fun-loving, kind-hearted person who was rich with friends. Now, in the police system, Dub was convicted was a convicted sex worker and occasional striptease dancer who often went by the name Pam Peak, which I think is an amazing name. Um, now she went missing. On July 15th, 1982, from South 216th Street and Pacific Highway South, which was south of the SeaTac Airport. And we will see a lot of girls were either taken or found near the SeaTac Airport. Um, she had been seen leaving the Three Bears Motel in Des Moines at about 8 p.m., hoping to, you know, get some dates. Now, Carl, her boyfriend at the time, called her parents asking if they had seen her. Shirley, not having heard from her daughter, filed a missing persons, a missing persons report that day from with the Tacoma Police Department. However, <clears throat> I don't like this next part. The Tacoma Police Department did not accept her missing persons report because Dub was known to be a transient individual who was old enough to disappear for a few days and later return. That's so irritating. Right? Like, who the fuck cares? Obviously, like, listen. All right. So I could get why they would tell the mom, like, she's an adult. But the fact that the boyfriend was like, nah, she's missing. He would know. Right? Because they were living together at the time. Like, there's a point where it's like, yes, if it was just mom, okay, whatever. But the fact that you got two people going, nah, she would have contacted somebody. And they were like, nah, she's transient, it's fine. You're like, okay, regardless. <sighs> um. Now, 18 days later, on August 12th, 1982, at about 1.30 p.m., her body was found in the Green River by Frank Lennard. <laughs> who was just passing by, who stopped near the PD&J Meat Company slaughterhouse near Kent. He informed the police, and it was not long before King County Police and the medical examiner approached the scene. The examiner took multiple photos of Dub's autopsy and collected and sent her fingerprints to a technician for a positive identification. She was identified by the purplish tattoo on her arm that had her nickname, Dub, written inside of a heart, which was supplemented by the fingerprints that were in the database from when she was arrested twice for sex work on Pacific Highway South 30 days prior to her death. 
and her body was found floating in the Green River. Now, I will say <clears throat> this next one, these next three are a little rougher because they were all found next to each other. That's so sad. So, like, he... Honestly, I think the reason why he was able to kill so many is because he did not waste any time. Which, I mean, you know, okay, I guess if you're trying to be a successful serial killer, good job. But, but also, like, fuck. Fuck you, dude. Yeah. So now remember, I'm just gonna, so, Dub was found on the 12th of August. Okay, 1982. Three more bodies were found on August 15th, 1982. So he wasted no fucking time. Um, Detective Reichart was the first, one of the first authorities to arrive on scene. Now, the first body they found was Marsha Faye Chapman. She was 31 years old. She was last seen leaving her home near South 188th Street and Pacific Highway South. Marsha Faye Chapman, also known as Belinda Bradford, Marcy Woods, Marcy, Marsha Bradford, and Belinda Jean Chapman on the streets, and to local police, was born on July 9, 1951. Many people called her tiny because of her diminutive stature, she was never married, but she was a mother to three children who were 11, 9, and 3 at the time of her death. On August 1st, 1982, at 8.30 p.m., Marsha told her kids that she was leaving to go to the store, but she never made it back. The oldest child called their grandmother, Teresa, who lived in West Seattle, asking if she could come take care of them until Marsha got back. The following day, Teresa called the police department to report her daughter missing, and she told them she has never, quote, never has she done anything like this. She is a really good mother. So Marsha was found on August 15th, 1982, along with two other women. She had been missing for two weeks, and the medical examiner clarified that she had been dumped in the Green River about a week before they had found her. Her fingerprints were in the system due to the arrest for soliciting sex and by identification provided by her mother. Now. Why? Why do they not listen when people call about this shit? Like, I get it. I know people do stupid shit. But it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, who fucking cares? Right. She's a mom taking care of her kids. Like, they should have taken it more seriously. I don't like people. Now, the same sperm that was found on one of the other women's bodies that she was found with <clears throat> was found on her body, and Ridgway's DNA saliva sample connected both victims to each other. In addition, the other woman named Cynthia and Marsha had both similar triangular stones inserted inside their vaginas. Ugh. Yeah. Marsha was described by many as a responsible individual who took care of herself and her children. She was outgoing and cheerful. She always talked about, she always made small talk with her neighbors, and she was known as a friendly face around the community. 
Now, the second body found at the scene was 17-year-old Cynthia Jean Hines. So these women were fucking babies. On February 23rd, 1965, Marilyn Hines and Robert Williams gave birth to Cynthia Jean Hines. Cynthia had a sister, Sherry Garrett, and a brother, Terry Hines. Oftentimes, Cynthia went by her nickname, Cookie. Unlike Wendy, who was the was the first victim, and Dub, who was the woman found before this, it was quite difficult to find additional information about Cookie. Like, there was not a whole lot of, like, stuff about her. I'm assuming it was because... How old was she? She's a baby. So, Cookie attended Nathan Hale High School in North Seattle, and like Wendy and Dub, she dropped out after falling in with the wrong crowd. She was also known to frequently run away from home. When she was no longer a student, Cookie gained employment through a private contractor to paint apartments and worked with a friend, Opal Mills, who was also was the third woman found in this same day um the king county vice squad knew cynthia as cookie because she had a record of assault um i think it would have been helpful to like get police records of cookies record to analyze the situation um that she may have been in because if cookie had been working in the sex industry for three years she may have had to engage in assault to, like, protect herself. You know what I mean? Yeah. So Cookie's body was also found on August 15th with Opal Mills and Marsha Chapman. The medical examiner concluded that she had been in the river for several days. <clears throat> now, Cookie, like I said, was only 17 when she died. Police linked Cookie and Marsha to the same killer because of the sperm that was found in both of their bodies which later was positively identified to match Ridgefield or Ridgeway. Sorry. The police department configured a sketch of her portrait as a useful means for public identification and actually posted it in the Seattle post intelligencer. Now on August 22nd, her father, Robert Williams shocked was able to identify her, his daughter following with, she might've had problems which I don't understand, like, who gives a shit? Um, now, the last few days of Cookie's life were very difficult to reconstruct, and there was, like, no traces because she constantly, like, would appear and disappear. Um, yeah. Her father mentioned that the last time he saw her was at a job at the South Seattle Barbecue Restaurant on August 10th, 1982. Um... Cookie was admired by her family and her brother Terry said that Cookie was a quote sweet person, a caring person and that she was loved by a lot of people. Um <clears throat> Now the third body that was found was that of Opal Mills and Opal Mills was 16 years old. She was a light-skinned African-American and was 
described chubby, <laughs> which I didn't. I didn't think she looked chubby from her pictures, but I digress. She was born in Seattle's Harborview Hospital on April 12, 1966. She she grew up raised by her mother Kathy and her father Robert, and lived with her brother Garrett, who was two years older than her and most and her most beloved. And I can't say this, but I know what kind of dog it is. It's a Lahasa Opso dog. But I, I I know I'm not saying that right, but I know what kind of dog it is. Um, and the dog's name was Muffy. Now, here's something that's really sad. This is why I said the, these three were kind of rougher. Opal was named after Robert's sister who was murdered in Oakland. And the killer for that case had never been caught. That's really sad. Yeah. Garrett said that he knew his role in Opal's life and said that, quote, she was the princess. From the time she was born, my main job always was to look after Opal and keep her safe. Now, this statement gets rougher. So just hold on to your butts. So people who knew her said that she was uh, very open, always sharing her problems, but was always happy and had a huge smile. Opal was considered to be very optimistic as she had a great imagination and plans laid out for the rest of her life. Garrett mentioned that Opal wanted to be rich one day so that she could take care of their mother and buy her a large house. Garrett said, quote, even when she was seven, she struck me as someone who cared about others more than herself. So growing up, Opal was known as a pure loving child. She was the the kind of person who would name all of her stuffed animals that laid on her bed. She dreamt of being a fashion model, was outspoken, and frequently challenged authority such as her parents and teachers. Opal was a bright student who had plans for her future. She knew what career path she wanted to follow and always worked to achieve her goals. Now, Opal was attending Kent Junior High until, for some unknown reason, she dropped out. Um, now the guess is that the decision was reached because she was trying to escape the violence that was going on at her house, like domestic violence between her parents. Um, on the morning of August 12th, 1982, Opal told her mother she was going to paint houses with Cynthia Hines. They had summer jobs, quote unquote, freelancing, painting houses through private contractors. Now, <clears throat> Kathy asked, Kathy the mom, asked Opal if she could ask the paint, painting contractors if there was a job open for her brother Garrett. At 12.55 p.m., 35 minutes before Dub's body was discovered by Opal, they think, um, Opal called home from a phone booth in, in I think it's Angle Lake, State Park on South 193rd Street and Pacific Highway South, hoping to get in touch with her mother to let her know there were no more jobs available. There were also reports stating that the phone call she made was to also ask Garrett for a ride home. And because Garrett was asleep, Opal didn't get to him. Um, that morning was the last time Kathy had seen Opal. Um, 
Garrett has been telling, you know, others that he was not able to forgive himself for not picking up the phone because that could have been the last time he was talking to his sister. So Opal's body was found with those of Cookie and Marsha Camp Chapman on August 15, 1982. Opal was the only victim out of those three that was not placed in the Green River, but rather on the river bank of the river. Ridgway had placed her on the bank, according to his statement, because he was going to return and have sex with her. Ew. Yeah. However, someone who was passing by saw him and he could no longer return to the Green River and dump other victims. Now, according to her autopsy, she was killed by strangulation. The medical examiner's office found her blue pants tied around her neck, which left ligature marks, and that her bra was pulled up to expose her breasts and that she had multiple bruises and abrasions. Her family had to identify her at the King County Medical Examiner's Office. Opal's body had traces of rigor mortis, stating that they, she had been dead for about a day or two when she was found. Um, the Mills family had a church service for her funeral, where the pastor described Opal as a very nice girl, and many community members were greatly astounded of the allegations of Opal's involvement in sex work and petty crimes. Her favorite song was Love Begins With One Hello, which was played at her funeral. Kathy, her mother, filed a wrongful death suit towards Ridgeway, not to win money, but to make sure Ridgeway would not profit from telling the story of the girls he killed. Uh, after Opal's death, her father, Robert, drank himself to death, and Kathy was not able to do anything that she and Opal did together anymore. So that one was like... It's so sad. And she was one of the youngest ones. And I think that's why it drives me crazy. Oh, and it's just like, dude, fuck off. Yeah. Gary, you can fuck right off. Um, This next victim, because I'm telling you, he was like, bing, 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 was Giselle Ann. Be honest. It's kind of impressive, to be honest. It is. And it's also impressive that he noticed that he, he noticed that people were noticing him dumping bodies by the Green River. Right. And so he changed it up. Which I mean good for you, but also fuck. But also fuck off. <laughs> um now this next girl was Giselle Ann Lavorne, and she was 17 when she went missing. On July 17th, 1982, near the SeaTac International Airport. She was found later, September 25th, 1982, south of the airport. So he really liked the airport for whatever fucking reason. Um, now, Giselle grew up in California. It was said that her childhood was happy, but she grew isolated as a young teenager and began to run away from home when she was about 14. Now this girl was a badass because she was a devoted fan of the Grateful Dead. And she followed their concerts all over the country, which is pretty awesome. 
Now, she had a history of prostitution, but she was also known to be an avid reader and had a high IQ of around 145. Very nice. Right? Now, in Anne Rule's book, The Green River Running Red, she reported that Giselle had become involved with a taxi driver named James Tyndall, who was like a, a bit older than Giselle. They shared a small apartment, and he said that Giselle had turned to prostitution to earn enough money to bail him out of jail for theft. Her parents wanted her to come home, and she intended on returning to California, but Tyndall, whom she had met while she was on the road, somehow persuaded her to stay in Washington State, as men often do. Uh, Sounds like she now, should have California. Yeah, she and what's and that has to kill her parents, too, when you think about it, because... If she had gone back to California, she'd probably still be alive. Um, now, Giselle was uh, of small stature with long, thick, blonde hair and blue eyes and was working as a prostitute. Um, it is doubtful that her parents knew exactly what she was doing. Her family was notified of her disappearance after she had been missing several days. Her boyfriend had reported her missing and said he tried to find her, but he could not. Police were very skeptical of his story, especially when they found out he was involved with other young teenage girls who had went away from home. Again, who fucking cares? She's missing and she's a fucking underage child. Fuck. Right. It's like, okay, yes, he's a scumbag. Fine. But let's still find the other one. Right. In defense attorney Mike Prothero's book, Defending Gary, Ridgway recounted a horrifying story of how he saw Giselle hitchhiking and pulled over to give her a ride. His young son, Matthew, who was age seven at the time, was fucking with him. He said he told his son to wait in the truck for him while he and Giselle went into the woods. After they had intercourse, Ridgway told Giselle that he thought he heard his son coming and she raised her head to look. Then he struck her head from behind, which was another thing he did frequently. And then put her neck in a chokehold. Once she was immobilized and unconscious, he took his black socks, tied them together, and then tied them around her neck so tightly that they could not be removed. Because he apparently returned to the scene later because, quote, they were my good dress socks and I didn't just want to leave them there. Because he's a garbage person. Right. Like, <laughs> that's what he's concerned about, ladies and gentlemen. Not the 17 year old that he just viciously murdered. Also, but how did the 17 year old not anything to his wife? Because he was seven and probably terrified, honestly. Yeah. Um, so Giselle was left in an isolated area under a clump of brush and was there for about two months before her body was discovered. Now, at Ridgeway's trial, her sister Michelle gave this speech about her sister. And it is heart-wrenching, you guys. So she said, quote, Giselle was very much loved by her family and has been missed very much every day for the last 20 years. 
because it took that long to catch him. Uh, Giselle was only 17 years old when she was murdered by that animal sitting over there who we have to call a man. I don't think we have to call him a man. She said he does not need to live or breathe but he also does not deserve to die. Dying would be too easy for him. It is impossible to put into words how much her murder has devastated and destroyed my family. This will never put an end or closure on her death or murder. I will miss her every day and it will never stop. And that's fucking awful. And that is also the end of part one. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, I wanted to keep going on that one but honestly like that one to me was like I feel like we should end it there after I finish that one um I also won't lie I have not finished part two but it's by the time we record again it will be finito um so yeah I know that and, and plus at that point guys I knew that this one was a lot it is a lot, and I feel like, you know, you gotta have those breaks in between. Yes. Um, so, but you guys won't have to wait long. You only have to wait a couple days for part two, and by the time we record again, I'll have my shit together, and part two will be ready. Um, now, like I also said, it is definitely going to be at least three parts, because there are so many victims, and as you guys have noticed, I am trying desperately to not only cover their deaths but like give you guys some background on who they were as people because again when i went and started looking i had to read this book i had to read um ann's book because um when you go and look at articles of these women there's not a lot of description on them and it's it's really it's really sad because I feel like they didn't get their story told. Some of them, unfortunately, I have gotten where I've gotten I don't have as much on them. I don't know if it's just because they didn't have a family or because they were underage or whatever. But there are some that I have found very little on. So I am trying. That's another reason why this is going to end up being so long. Um. Well, so they remembered, not him. Yeah, well, that that was my thought process because every, every article that I read, it started with Gary Ridgway, the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history. Fuck off, Gary Ridgway. So, again, I feel like a lot of the articles that I found focused on him and not on the victims, so I'm trying to do the opposite of that. So bear with me as it might take me three or four episodes to get it all together. If you guys don't want to hear it in that long of a time span, let me know because I don't want to research four parts and then y'all are like over it by part two. So just, just let me know. Um, but yeah, that's all I have for today. Um, so as always, if you can't love yourself, how in the hell you gonna love anybody else? Can sure. I get an amen? Amen. Even Vera said amen. All right, y'all. Yeah. We will see you next time. Bye. Bye.